just said hi to me. Yeah. I'm Emma. <laughs> I was born and raised in the North Island of New Zealand and moved to Chicago when I was 19 after I got married. And we now live in the deep south of New Zealand in Dunedin. I have three kids and I'm an artist by profession. No one goes beyond the reef. Mm-hmm. Emma Apple and her daughter are walking down a normally busy road near their house. It's typically packed with racing buses, camper vans, and passenger cars. Today, though, everything is different. So far, only two cars, but about five different families walking. Just over two weeks ago, on March 25th, Emma and, well, everyone else in New Zealand with a cell phone, got a text from the government. Yeah, my daughter, and she wasn't all that pleased about getting that shocking alert on her phone. The Prime Minister had declared a level four national emergency, and it meant that wherever New Zealanders stayed that night, they would have to stay for the duration of the emergency, for weeks. They could have no close contact with anyone outside of their bubble. The bubble is like a seal on the people you interact with. Morning. For most people, it should be your own household. So me, my husband, my three kids, our three kids, in our little bubble. So we, we don't interact with anyone else, not our neighbours, family, friends. And when we go out, we try to stay at a distance from other people. The Prime Minister's goal with these actions is not just to slow down the spread of the virus, which is the goal of many other countries, including the United States. It's to eliminate the virus entirely. She's put people into these bubbles and she shut down the borders. You know, it's hard and it feels sort of disconnected. You know, when we don't have it in front of us, we don't see people dying like in other countries, but They've sent that message that that's because we're doing this and the only way to stop that happening here is to continue doing this. Is it worth it? Looking at the way other countries and states have suffered, I do think it's worth it, yeah, definitely. You see, as of right now, New Zealand hasn't just flattened the curve, it's crushed it. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, the hidden cost of flattening the curve. Flatten the curve. It's become a hashtag and basically a motto in the fight against the virus that causes COVID-19. New Zealand has become a model of what it looks like when strict social distancing is done right. In a country of nearly 5 million people, as of this recording, only five of them have died of COVID-19. So in an island nation with public health care and a coronavirus spending package that is funding businesses so they could keep paying furloughed workers and increasing welfare benefits, flattening the curve, well, it isn't easy, but it's certainly easier than it is in other places like the U.S. Today, America is at home for better and for worse. The curve flattens, but then other troubling things still pop up. More on that shortly. First, where did the idea of flattening the curve even come from? What does it really mean? 
We searched the internet to find the earliest references to the phrase and found the guy who created that now famous graphic with its two sloping lines that is currently informing local and national policy nearly everywhere. That came out of an original document from the CDC, I think it was in 2007, that showed the two curves. That Then we were thinking about the pandemic was going to be influenza as a pandemic, and no one really uh, knew that coronavirus could become a pandemic at that moment. But we always recognized that it, it was a matter of when, not if, a pandemic was going to occur. Dr. Drew Harris studies population health and health policy at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. In the past, he's helped officials get ready for pandemics like this one. What's worse in some sense by this particular virus as opposed to the flu is that people are sicker for a longer period of time. By now, you've certainly seen this graphic. It's two curves. The first curve is a sharp, sort of steep slope, a steep hill that indicates a lot of people have been infected at once and they've overwhelmed hospitals with too many sick patients to treat. The second curve is a gentle slope, a rolling hill, if you will. It's, well, it's flatter and it indicates fewer people are getting infected at the same time. Illnesses are spread out over weeks and months, and hospitals can handle the number of patients they get. So we've been trying to, all together now, flatten the curve, right? Well, flattening the curve has been part of the the language of uh, epidemiology for some time. I created a graphic that showed the, the two pandemic curves, one of an overwhelming surge of cases versus a more manageable surge of cases. I added to that a line which indicated the hospital capacity to try to explain to people what was really at stake here. And that image sat out there for about six or seven days and someone picked it up and it started to go viral. And someone added to that the the common phrase that was used in epidemiology of flattening the curve. Right. So Harris tweeted out his graphic on February 28th before any elected officials had said those words out loud that I'd heard anyway. Other public health experts were tweeting and retweeting variations of it. Journalists picked it up and regular people started sharing it and they started doing it. So I had a theory that people who understood infectious diseases had become frustrated with a general lack of guidance from leaders about how people could avoid infection. And so they decided to offer guidance of their own via social media. I asked Harris if my theory was correct. Yes, I believe it is. When a public health official says, you know what, um, this can be a very serious event, we have to be prepared. And then the officials say, oh, I'm not worried about this all. There's going to be a few cases and they're going to disappear completely. And every public health person says, no, that's not true. I think we all knew that this was going to be a major event uh, and were frustrated that it wasn't reflected and taking it seriously by the uh, political leadership. Harris believed the message of social distancing, what it was and why people needed to start doing it, needed to get out there to the public immediately. Because the public has the ability to manage the capacity, that manage the surge by our actions, uh, by our social distancing. The best analogy I can come up with for the virus itself, uh, you know, it's just imagine you're on the shoreline watching a hurricane come across the, the ocean 
you say, okay, that's going to be a big storm and we can predict where the hurricane's going to come. We can predict its intensity. But the virus is a little different than a hurricane. It can come in, but we can control whether it's where it's going to land. We can control whether it's going to be a Cat 1 or a Cat 4 based on our actions collectively. Here in Texas, we have more than a little experience with hurricanes, and we are trying to control the virus by staying home, and only time will tell if we've been successful. So now we know exactly how flattening the curve became the national motto, and a hashtag, and how it's influenced the country to keep social distance. So what happens in that social isolation? I want to talk about the difficult and sometimes dangerous side of flattening the curve. Because while it might seem like just sitting around watching Netflix is the easiest thing you've ever been asked to do to save lives, for some people, it's not so simple. Say you live in a violent home during normal times. What if you're now trapped in that unstable home, not allowed to leave, and with nowhere to go, if you could leave. I'm just returning your phone call because you did um, submit an online uh, registration form. Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Troval says in the Houston area, there's been a spike in the number of calls for help from people who are victims of domestic violence, and those calls have become more urgent. When I talk to people working at the state level and here in Houston, um, it's not just that there's an increase in calls, but also an increase in the intensity of calls. People are calling in and saying, like, I don't know what to do. Uh, From what I'm seeing is that you're looking for divorce with custody, correct? I don't have an escape. I am trapped at home. Are you and your husband currently living together? With my abuser, and I don't know what to do. And how many children do you have together? How can I stay safe from the virus, but also stay safe from my abuser? That's the thing, right? It's the idea that there's no escape from the violent person in your home in a situation where you're basically quarantined at home. And then when it comes to... You know, if you're in a situation where you are looking to leave and you're ready to leave, the shelter capacity is often full. The CEO of the Texas Council on Family Violence, she said 42 percent of requests for emergency shelter go unmet because of capacity issues. What I fear most is that when we get into a year's time, when we're going to see this escalation of violence, that our communities are not going to be equipped to uh, respond and address the, the needs for continued victim safety and offender accountability, and they will fall to the wayside um, for, for other priorities that are in front of them or because those systems and communities are not trained, equipped, and prepared. So 42% of the requests in the state go unmet. In the Houston area, the percentage goes up to 78%. That's on a regular day with no COVID-19? That's on a regular day. Wow. Yeah, 42% statewide uh, emergency shelter requests go unmet because of capacity issues. So there's a sense of, you know, the the state is already ill-prepared to deal with this issue even without any sort of external disaster. So in South Texas and Southeast Texas, where you are, we're not unfamiliar with 
disasters. This is a disaster. We not infrequently have major hurricanes that come through. Um, I understand that you talked to somebody who was living in a violent situation uh, during Hurricane Harvey. What can you tell me about that? So I was able to talk to uh, Faith Graves. I guess I should note that um, her her name has been somewhat altered uh, to avoid retribution from her ex-husband. So Faith, uh, she was in the Katy area during Harvey. It was hard because, like, throughout Harvey, we had to stay together. We couldn't, like, we had to deal with each other's uh, differences. She she described to me this kind of escalating tense situation where nobody can leave the house. And, you know, there had been outbursts and a history of, of violence. Then it just like being stuck at home. She just talks about how um, things just escalated and escalated. And he's constantly on his computer. And when I when I wanted to see the computer to see what he was doing, he was like covering it up. And I asked him something about social media and he told me not to bring it up again because if he if I brought it up again I was gonna you know I was gonna get it basically don't bring it up again it has nothing to do with our lives um so I brought it up again and I snatched the laptop from him and um he basically snatched it away from me and kicked me on my back and we got into a huge fight a huge huge fight and the kids were around. She had to end up getting surgery because of the injury. We were talking about COVID now, and she just was like, I'm so, so grateful I'm not in that situation anymore. You know, I feel like I'm free. And, you know, even though I am stuck at home, and, and she just was like, I can't imagine what people were going through, what I was going through in Harvey, like what they're going through now uh, w- with this pandemic. My eyes are filled with tears right now just thinking about all those kids. It breaks my heart, too. I know. I Obviously, we're worried about flattening the curve, lowering the infection rate of COVID-19. But at the same time, we're seeing now this increase. Um, so a growing curve in domestic violence in Montgomery County, you know, that's a 35 percent increase. And from everybody I talk to, they're expecting things to get worse. Thank you, Elizabeth Droval from Houston Public Media for bringing us this story. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad more attention is being paid to this, uh, this issue. So the cost of flattening the curve, the danger in these homes. For others, though, the threat comes not from their respective partners, but from themselves. Just up the road at KUT in Austin, reporter Claire McInerney talked to three people who are basically white-knuckling it through social distancing. They have substance use disorders. They're fighting addiction. Here's Claire. A lot of us are counting time. Days since we've been sheltered in place. Days we've been working from home. Or since we went to school. Or since we lost our job. People in recovery are used to counting time as a way to measure their sobriety. So my name is Annabelle, and I've been sober since August 31st, 2016. Uh, My name is Kevin Dick. I moved to Austin in November of 2018. That is actually, I moved here on my sober date. I basically moved here to go to treatment. So my name is Chris Marshall. 
I've been sober since February 16, 2007, so I just celebrated 13 years of sobriety. Annabelle, Kevin, and Chris all live in Austin and are all in recovery from addiction. Like the rest of us, they're hanging out at home and dealing with layoffs or slowed work. Unlike many other people, though, they aren't cracking afternoon beers or having virtual happy hours. They're facing the isolation and uncertainty of a pandemic head-on, sober. Annabelle, who's asked that we don't use her last name, goes to at least one Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a week and meets up with her sponsor once a week as well. So being in shelter-in-place mode definitely has changed my, my weekly routine. And I was very resistant to online meeting format, but I've found that it's kind of awesome. Even though she can still talk to her sober community on a regular basis, the isolation is sometimes putting her in a different headspace than before. Being alone and in a house and not in your world at work with your people, you know, is triggering in a lot of ways where maybe my mind is just more occupied most of the time or cravings crop up when they normally wouldn't. And all of this free time reminds her of a different point in her life. I had a lot more idle time when I was drinking and drugging and there's some kind of muscle memory that crops up of like, oh, you're painting your kitchen. Wouldn't that be so great with a bunch of amphetamines and the whole house would be painted by now? You know, the the wonderful thing is that being sober in a strange way has prepared me for something exactly like this because so much of the work is learning how to be alone, where When I was drinking and drugging, being alone was terrifying. Dealing with being alone and maintaining sobriety is something Kevin Dick is also grappling with. Meetings are, you know, the bedrock of AA. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what it gives you being there in that physical space. But now that it's been taken out from underneath us, I think we all are realizing just how important that aspect is. You hold hands at every meeting at the end. Um, and you you hug people and you get physically close to people. Um, and that's something that was entirely missing from my life before I got sober. Like many of us, anxiety, depression, and uncertainty are prevalent for Kevin. And those used to be triggers for using drugs. Like If I notice these feelings creeping up, I can jump into a Zoom meeting, like an online AA meeting, anytime I want. It's actually the first time in my life I've felt grateful for my addiction because it's unlocked this like endless community of support for me. That community is available to me now. It's just online. Chris Marshall says being surrounded by other sober people is one of the greatest parts of recovery. It's why he opened Sands Bar, an alcohol-free bar in East Austin. So now he's also relying on online communities. His bar is doing a virtual gathering with mocktail kits this month to connect with his regulars. But he also wants to make sure everyone in sobriety feels supported right now. From someone who's had many years of sobriety, I would say that this thing is always going to be one day at a time. And all you have to do is just focus on the 24 hours in front of you. And throughout this pandemic, he knows many people are turning to booze to numb out the uncomfortable emotions. You see all the memes on social media about drinking and people can get alcohol to go and deliver to their homes. 
But for me, all that is, is just a reassurance that what I'm doing and what I've been doing for the past 13 years is the right thing because I don't have to lean on a toxic substance to get through a hard situation. That was Claire McInerney. She's a reporter for KUT News in Austin. We started this episode in New Zealand, halfway around the world, and we talked about how New Zealand's become a model for other countries seeking to flatten that curve. Now we're going to make one last stop, this time much closer to home. It's another example of the darker side of all this curve flattening. Matamoros, Mexico is just over the border from Brownsville, Texas. More than 1,500 asylum seekers from Central America, they're stuck there, living in cramped, tented migrant camps. The asylum seekers had hoped to be given asylum to the United States, but American courts have stopped. So to remove these people from a setting that is, well, the exact opposite of social distancing, Mexico sent buses and volunteers living at these camps hopped on, hoping to return to their original homes. It was a long ride, and the buses took them all the way to Mexico's southern border, the city of Tapachula that runs up against Guatemala. Texas Public Radio reporter Reynaldo Leanos Jr. met a passenger on one of those buses. He's 19 years old, and he's heading straight south. I've been following Milton for several weeks now. He's from Nicaragua. He agreed to talk with us if we didn't use his full name because he worries it'll affect his plan to get into the U.S. Milton says he couldn't take it anymore. He wanted to enter the U.S. the right way, but his asylum case was denied, so he decided to go back home to Nicaragua. He's now on the bus. It kind of looks like a charter bus. There's about 30 other people inside. They're from across Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. While seated in the bus, he sends me voice messages. He's thinking a lot about what just happened. He's sad. Milton says he knows God will make sure everything is okay and says he'll see what happens next. It takes about a day to get from Matamoros to Tapachula. He finally arrives, but Guatemala's border is closed because of COVID-19. So he crosses into the country by wading across the river. Milton says residents from the town see him crossing and approach him. They accuse him of being infected with coronavirus. They threaten to call the police and turn him in. But he says the locals end up just checking his throat and temperature and let him go. They've closed basically the borders of getting into certain towns or, or certain communities. Human rights people say some communities are taking matters into their own hands. Jackie McVicker with the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission says some people in Guatemala are closing their communities. 
and stopping the flow of people into their towns. There's a great deal of, of mistrust at this point that the government is even giving accurate information or trustworthy information. And so that's led to a lot of communities, for example, taking their own measures to protect themselves. The residents end up letting Milton through and he crosses the border. That night, he stays at a hotel and sends me another audio message. Milton is really nervous right now. He just wants to get home. We message back and forth that night. He says he'll have to wake up early in the morning to continue his journey. I called him the next day, but he didn't answer. So I sent him a voice message. Buenos dias, Milton. ¿Cómo estás? Then another message. Hola, Milton. Soy Reinaldo. Nomás quería saber cómo está todo. Nothing. I'm starting to get concerned. I talk to asylum seekers pretty frequently, and sometimes the line just goes cold. They change their number or, in some cases, go missing. I put myself in his shoes. He's just 19, and he's trying to navigate a country he's not familiar with. A day goes by, and I receive a message. Milton says he's trapped in Guatemala. He's at a house, and he can't leave this house for 15 days. He's sad and depressed. This is what happened. Soon after Milton crossed to Guatemala, a curfew was put into place for the entire country. Anyone seen outside their house between the hours of 4 p.m. and 4 a.m. would be fined, detained, or put into a jail. A day after the curfew was announced, Milton says he was with a group of friends. It was almost 4 p.m. Milton says he was approached by police officials. They told him that he needed to get home and not break the curfew. Milton didn't want to break the law, so a friend invited him to isolate at his house. Milton says it feels like the government is punishing them. He's just trying to get home to be with his family. It's now been almost three weeks, and he's still quarantined at the house. He says he can't leave the house, not even to get food or a snack. He says doctors and police visit them daily. They get their temperature check and make sure no one is sick or has left. This is something that human rights activists say is happening. Here's Jackie McVicker again. They say that they're sending the police to monitor homes where people are being quarantined. Back in the house, Milton says he spends his time bored, but he's able to make phone calls to his parents. He says his parents are really worried. His mom sold a piece of their land back home so that he would have money to try to get to the U.S. to claim asylum. But none of that happened. COVID-19 happened. And he's now stuck in this house. Milton says he's not sure what his next plans are. He's running out of money. There's no public transportation because of the lockdown. So even if he wanted to leave, it's impossible to get through Guatemala. For now, he's going to wait until the curfew is over. Then the journey continues back to his family.
Thank you to Reynaldo Leonios Jr. for that story. Throughout this show, we've talked about the hidden costs of flattening the curve. In the United States, the White House has issued shelter-in-place guidelines called 30 Days to Slow the Spread. Those will be reevaluated by April 30th. So what happens when we flatten the curve? What does life here look like? Pandemic expert Drew Harris has a final thought. Let's just imagine we do a really great job of um, flattening the curve at the moment by keeping people at home. The disease stops spreading as, as much as it was before. We see fewer new cases develop. And then everyone's going to say, OK, great, we're done. Well, we can get back to our jobs and back to our lives and back to normal. But the problem is the virus is still going to be out there. We don't have a vaccine and we don't have a way of using medicine to prevent its spread. So when people start to go back to what they were doing before, we fully expect we're going to be back to square one unless we begin to do that aggressive testing and contact tracing. This is going to be with us for a long time. Until we have a vaccine to prevent it from completely spreading, uh, we will be living in the age of COVID-19. We're kind of painted into the corner here by this thing that is so small, you need an electron microscope to see it, but so powerful, it stopped the whole world. Strict social distancing is the only way to slow down this virus's insidious crawl across the planet, consuming communities and smashing economies along the way. It's a blunt instrument, yes. But right now, until we have some proven treatments or a vaccine, it's the only one we have. Still, well, flatten the curve might be a catchy hashtag. It's real people in really difficult situations that are caught up in this, in this spider's web of social distancing, stuck in unsafe places and situations, unable to move as predators loom, unable to extricate themselves from this sticky silk, spun to keep us safe, to keep our families safe, to keep doctors and nurses safe, to keep entire nations safe. I don't have any good answers. I feel like I should, and I wish I did. I know this. Flattening the curve works. It saves lives. In the U.S., it may save hundreds of thousands of lives, and we have to do it. But, and this is a really important but, it is making some people far less safe. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, it's going to be with us for a while. We will likely have to do some sort of social distancing for many, many months to come. Perhaps we could spend some of that time in isolation coming up with new and better ways to turn this social distancing spider's web into a true safety net for those for whom sheltering in place provides no kind of shelter at all. This episode was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony. Our sound engineer this week was Claire Mullen. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Special thanks to reporter Elizabeth Troval from Houston Public Media, Claire McInerney at KUT News, and TPR's Reynaldo Leonios Jr. 
Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon. <laughs>